0: Coop Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast, research feature. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Coop Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. Here we give a stage to voices, opinions, and research that address the broad and decisive issues of global cooperation.
1: As you know, my name is Janine Herbert, and I am Julia Fleck. And as with our previous episodes, we will be your show hosts for this edition of Coop Radio. The Global Cooperation Podcast.
0: Now, beginning with this episode, we are starting a mini series on another very politically charged topic in international cooperation migration. And for the first episode, we will be joined by one of our fellows at the center, Dr. Bidisha Biswas. In her research project at the center, she analyzes policymaking and cooperation around
1: refugees in South Asia. This is a bit of a different direction for the podcast, no? Compared to our previous episodes that centered mostly around global cooperation in the fight against the pandemic. You're right, kind of. However, in a way, migration and migration
0: governance are also linked to the pandemic as migrants, displaced persons, and refugees are among the most at-risk groups in such a global health crisis. And plus, their number has increased a lot over the last 30 years. In 2020, the total number of international migrants was approximately around 280 million compared to 153 million in 1990. So according to the International Organization for Migration of the UN, nearly two-thirds of these are labor migrants, so people changing countries for work.
1: But there are also between 26 and 30 million refugees. So migration has been accelerating and is far more complex than you'd think. People move from one place to another for different reasons, to get a job or an education because they have to flee persecution or human rights violations like torture or from war and other conflicts, crises or violence. It seems like we're actually opening a pretty big can of worms here. So how does it connect to our previous discussions about global cooperation and the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, two
0: things I think. Especially when we're not looking at migration as a whole for the moment, but focus on refugees. So people fleeing some kind of crisis or conflict or persecution. First, both phenomena, if you want to call it that, are a kind of crisis, both for the individual experiencing it and for the states or societies who have to manage it somehow. And this is impossible for one state or system to do that on its own. So there's definitely a need for cooperation here that makes sense. And second, the COVID-19 pandemic has really had an impact on the situation of many migrants and again especially refugees. Now everyone experienced the reduction in international mobility and sometimes people even were not allowed to leave their home except to buy groceries. But for many trying to flee their home countries or wanting to migrate for economic reasons this was more than just an inconvenience. Thousands ended up stranded in refugee camps or mass accommodations with bad living and hygiene conditions. This left them especially
1: vulnerable to the virus, or they got stuck somewhere along their route. So, we've really got a double crisis here. One of a large and still growing number of people trying to move from one country to another, for whatever reason, and the challenges for the receiving localities to absorb and integrate them. And one of public health and a global pandemic where these people are among the most vulnerable to contracting a very contagious disease. And in the public discussion, this coincided with the debate around border closures and the fear of a quote-unquote diseased other, where any cross-border movement of people was suddenly seen as a potential disease vector. Absolutely.
0: It's a very complex set of linkages and interconnections between these two issues. And the only way to even start to solve any of this is, of course, international or global cooperation. So let's try to break down that nexus of COVID and migration, this double crisis, as you call it, and move on to our first expert in this mini-series, Bidisha Biswas.
1: Right, let's introduce Bidisha. She is a professor at the Department of Political Science of the Western Washington University and has joined the Center for Global Cooperation Research in May 2021. In her research project, she analyzes how refugees are framed and how this framing affects policymaking and cooperation in Southeast Asian countries like India, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. So welcome, Professor Bidisha Biswas. Thank you. Do I pronounce that right? Absolutely. So for our listeners, can you just introduce yourself quickly? Your your name, your position, a
2: short academic bio. Sure. Uh, so I'm Professor Badisha Biswas. I'm a professor of political science at Western Washington University, which is located near Seattle in the West Coast of the United States. And in 2019 I actually finished Fulbright stint in Portugal in Lisbon and that that was the genesis of my interest in refugee research. And a few years before that, I had done a fellowship at the United States State Department in Washington, D.C. on human rights and democracy, and I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. Welcome. So tell us a little bit about your project at the center. Right. So the project is on the global refugee regime, and what I'm going to be looking at is how refugees are framed in different countries. And my region of focus will be South Asia, but it's really something that's applicable to different regions in the world. So I wanna look at the conditions under which refugees are seen as being deserving of refuge, conditions under which they're seen as not being deserving of refuge and how that shapes national policy. Um, and you know, my, my expected finding is that while we have a lot of global norms about how you know, all refugees deserve shelter, ultimately it comes down to contestations about how specific refugee groups are being described by the country in question, the country that's supposed to host them. Mm -hmm. And do you look at specific refugee groups or specific areas? Yes. This particular project will look at countries in South Asia. So I'm going to be looking at India, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. And all three of these countries are actually not signatories to the refugee convention, but all three of them have different stages of sending refugees or receiving refugees. So I'm really interested in how... Countries that, for whatever reason, have not signed on to the convention still find themselves grappling with these questions. And, you know, I'd like to investigate the extent to which also signing or not signing the treaties affects their willingness to be part of the global regime.
1: Mm -hmm. Maybe for those who are not familiar with refugees and, and the laws around refugee statuses, what does being a signatory
2: to the refugee conventions entail? Right. So the United Nations has a refugee convention that says that if you're a signatory to it, you are legally obligated to provide asylum to those who come to your border, you know, without any kind of discrimination on the basis of their national origin or other conditions. And that convention was done specifically in response to the circumstances after the end of the Second World War. Uh, So initially, it was restricted to a particular region, Europe, in a particular time period, the Second World War, but then the subsequent protocol in 1967 that was extended to much of the rest of the world. So today, most countries in the world are actually signatories to this convention. And the extent to which they follow their obligations, you know, varies, Uh, but the convention really sort of set the standard, a global standard for saying that when people are fleeing persecution, particularly political persecution, they deserve to be given asylum in another country till such time that it is safe for them to return. And the idea behind the convention is that ultimately global pressure will create conditions where the country that is sending out the refugees will ultimately be pressured to take them back. That is the hope that sort of underlines the convention. Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm thinking of, of migration and refugees in modern times, so like the last 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Are these conventions still up to date?
2: Uh, the conventions are not up to date in the sense that, for example, there is no space to talk about climate refugees, which is an escalating issue you know, and the the convention really says that you're a refugee if you're fleeing political persecution. And so if you are being driven out of your home because your home is no longer physically viable or sustainable, then that does not fall under the convention. And and I, I think there are countries particularly in in the Asia Pacific area that have been saying that we need to sort of expand this definition. But I think the global will to do that really isn't there because no one knows what that will lead to. The other issue, and this is a very big issue, I think, in the U.S. and the immigration that is coming into the U.S. through its southern borders is whether people grappling with economic problems, severe economic problems, really constitute refugees, right? So if, if you're fleeing your country because you have no viable way to get an income or you're fleeing your country because you see no way to really survive unless you join a gang. Those things don't fall under the technical definition of a refugee because technically that means that you're an economic migrant, not that you're facing a threat to your life. But really, I think we all know that the economic and the political and the personal sort of tie in very, very closely. So those things are are issues in the convention that need to be expanded. But in my view, the biggest problem really is that the refugee regime in the world, whether or not you signed on to the treaties, indicates that we have a collective global responsibility to take care of refugees. That was the idea in 1948, and that's still the idea. But what I think we're seeing in the world is that the countries that have the most resources to partake in that responsibility are not the countries that are hosting refugees. So, you know, I think it's no secret that hosting large amounts of refugees is expensive, right? I mean, you have to give them food and shelter, employability. It takes a lot of resources. But, but 86% of the world's refugees are actually hosted in developing countries. So it's not the countries of the global north that are taking on the responsibility. And so there is this idea of responsibility sharing, but the reality is that the global north is shifting the responsibility to countries in the global south, and countries in the global south have variable degrees of capacity and willingness to host people who are coming into their country. Unless we find a way to overcome that problem, our notions of who is or isn't a refugee becomes a secondary problem, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should we maybe for a minute then zoom in on one of those cases that you're looking at with a recent example where the Rohingya in Myanmar were first to... At a large part, moved to Bangladesh.
2: Yeah, that's that's really, I think, a very interesting case. So the Rohingya have long been seen as non-citizens in Myanmar. So, you know, steady streams of Rohingya would go into Bangladesh and also further into Southeast Asia over, you know, over the past several decades. But since in the last decade, that has really escalated. And so over a period of, I would say, actually under 10 years, Bangladesh had found itself hosting up to 800 to 900,000 Rohingya refugees. And during this time, Bangladesh has been facing a climate crisis of its own. So significant numbers of Bangladeshis themselves are trying to leave the country and go to other countries in search of livelihood, yes, but also because they're, the land that they occupy is just not habitable anymore. The interesting thing I think about Bangladesh is that in contrast to many countries, the government of Bangladesh has not actually been that resistant to taking refugees in. There has been a sense that you know the Rohingya are co-religion, they're also Muslim, so Bangladesh should give them a home. I think there's also been a sense in the Bangladesh government that hosting large numbers of refugees increases Bangladesh's standing in the international community. And also, I mean, to be fair, from a more cynical perspective, Bangladesh doesn't really have the capacity to say no to the refugees, right? It's it's not a particularly strong country. So it's not like, for example, India, which hosts significantly smaller numbers of refugees, but also has the military capacity to kind of put troops on the borders if it came to that and said, no, we're, we're not taking the Rohingya at all. So, you know, through a combination of willingness or compulsion, Bangladesh finds itself hosting this very, very large body in a country that's small and that in many ways is shrinking because of climate change. And at the same time, other countries that have historically found themselves hosting refugee, like Thailand, for example, Malaysia, these countries have become more and more resistant to having any Rohingya. So the Rohingya are really being kind of squeezed more and more into this single country. And Bangladesh's official position has always been that we will temporarily shelter the refugees. And even though we're not a signatory to the refugee convention, we will take help from the UN to host them. But ultimately, we want Myanmar to take the Rohingya back. And that outcome seems very, very unlikely to be a reality in the foreseeable future. But Bangladesh is adamant that that's what it wants to do. So one of the paradoxes is that not that there are a lot of countries that want to take in the refugees, the world is very happy to let Bangladesh deal with it. But even when there are limited cases, for example, Canada said, "Okay, we'll we'll take some refugees, particularly those who've suffered sexual violence. Bangladesh said, no, 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 You, you don't need to take them. We want to send them back to Myanmar because Bangladesh is afraid that if it sets the stage in motion to have Rohingya leave Bangladesh for countries in the global north, then more refugees will come in because they'll see Bangladesh as kind of a temporary hosting position. So it's really a very, very sticky situation where a country with limited resources has done a reasonably good job of hosting a large number of refugees, but it's, it's an untenable situation. But the exit paths to resolving that situation, whether it's resettling the Rohingya in other countries or returning them to Myanmar, those don't really seem viable right now. Mm -hmm.
1: Complicated. But I I think these refugee and migration issues are always complicated. We have this discussion in, in Europe
2: for years. Right. And actually, one of the things that was interesting to me about this particular crisis is that South Asia has no regional framework to deal with refugee issues at all. Right. So, We hear a lot about, you know, conflicts within the European Union and poor coordination within the European Union, but at least there is a framework for cooperation. There's also a framework for cooperation on refugee governance in the African continent, and there is one in Latin America as well. But in South Asia, even though it has produced a lot of refugees over time, there's absolutely no mechanism for the countries within South Asia to even talk to each other about refugee problems. So they haven't signed the global refugee conventions. They're not working on regional solutions. I mean, not even close. And so there is this intense, I would say, vacuum of cooperation-based frameworks. And cooperation-based frameworks, frameworks are, are problematic everywhere, but at least if you have them, you have a template. That template is not there. I mean, by rights, really, I would say India as the biggest country in South Asia should be more proactive in just helping Bangladesh sort of deal with the situation. But India has just said, no, like we're not interested at all. And which I think speaks poorly to India's leadership capacity in the region as a country that wants to be seen as a global power. And that's something I've written sort of opinion pieces on. But I think it also just speaks poorly to the long-term ability of South Asia as a region to function on an issue that's really a shared problem.
1: Mm -hmm. And maybe can you take us a little bit into that issue with India as kind of a failing leader in
2: that respect? What's the reason? You know, that's actually one of one of the issues that I want to investigate more during my fellowship. So at the time that Independent India was created in 1947, India and Pakistan both dealt with large numbers of, you could call them refugees, people that were displaced because of the violent circumstances in which that region was partitioned. And there was a sense, I think, in India at that time that the UN Refugee Convention didn't really apply to that situation because, you know, it was it was a. Peculiar and unique circumstance. So at that time, India decided the convention is not for us. We're, we're not going to join in. But subsequent to that, India found itself actually hosting fairly large numbers of refugees, refugees that were coming in from what is today Bangladesh. So in the civil war that overtook, Pakistan in 1971, millions of refugees actually came in through India's eastern border and the Indian government welcomed them and housed them. And in fact, my own family was involved in in that refugee outflow. So that was seen as something that was a humanitarian responsibility of the Indian government to house people that were also historically Indians, uh, but it was also something that was in India's national interest because it was a way to embarrass Pakistan and ultimately break up Pakistan. So that's a complicated history that I hope to explain better in my publications. And then subsequent to that, India also hosted a large number of Tibetan refugees that continue to live in India and have done so for decades. So Dalai Lama himself is based in India, but so are a lot of other Tibetans. So there's the Bengalis in the east, there's the Tibetans in the north, and in the south, India hosts a considerable number of Tamil refugees who fled Sri Lanka and came into India. And that is primarily a function of sub-national interest. So the, the state government in the southern state of Tamil Nadu has been interested in hosting Tamil refugees because it's a way for them to show that they are interested in the welfare of the larger Tamil people. So while on the one hand, India is hosting these different refugee populations, partly out of self-interest, partly out of humanitarian regions. On the other hand, it has shown no willingness to address the refugee problems writ large in South Asia, Um, not with Pakistan, certainly, not with Bangladesh, and with Sri Lanka, it's a kind of up-down relationship. So I think with the current government, the current Hindu nationalist government, I think the willingness to address refugee problems either nationally or regionally, has declined even further because the policies of this current government is so nationalist and exclusionary that there isn't really a place for refugees, particularly if they are refugees that are not Hindu. And so in a situation where I think India is consistently seeking a greater say on the international stage, they've been claiming a seat on the Security Council. They have been, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, really pushing India as a global leader in the making, I think its inability or its unwillingness to step up in the humanitarian crises that's unfolding in Bangladesh in particular, but also to really have a vision for what's going to happen with Tamils in Sri Lanka, to at least acknowledge the presence of large numbers of Afghan refugees in Pakistan. I think it raises a question, well, if India wants to be a leader, what is it a leader in, right? Like if, if it cannot speak up on the clear human displacement that is ongoing just within its own region, then I think its claim to being a global leader really suffers. So, you know, the rhetoric of global leadership, emerging superpower doesn't really match its work on the ground.
1: Yeah. You you mentioned that your family history is also connected to these issues. Is that what inspired your, your interest into this field?
2: Yes. I mean, I've always been interested in sort of seeing how refugees are constructed because, you know, my family is is Hindu and it's Bengali. And so the migration from what is now Bangladesh to India began in 1947 and continued in little kind of drips, as did many Bengali Hindu families right up to the 70s. But my family were seen as the good refugees, right? The refugee situation was created because of what happened in British India, because of what, You know, bad Pakistan, West Pakistan government did to East Pakistan. So we were never seen as being anything short of deserving of of a legitimate and legal home in India. But that discourse does not apply, for example, to Bengali Muslims who have also fled what is now Bangladesh and tried to enter India. And particularly for this current government, the Bengali Muslim refugee is a bad actor and the Bengali Hindu refugee is a good actor. And they've been very explicit in kind of driving that wedge. And so over time, I've actually seen, even within my own family, for the first time, the sense, among some at least, to say, well, you know, we deserve to be in India. But the Bengali Muslim down the street doesn't deserve to be in India. And this is new. This has only happened in the last 10 years. And so... Yes, that, that is how I got interested in the question of, well, who decides who's a good and a bad refugee? And, and to what extent does that actually impact policy? Because it's one thing for people to say these things, you know, in, in discussions within their family or the friend circle. It's another thing for these things to be echoed or to be advocated for by the government. Certainly my personal experience influences that. But the other thing that I think really influenced it is that living in the U.S., I see so much anxiety about people coming in from South and Central America and taking over the southern states of America. And I I read a lot about the anxiety in Europe as well. And I keep coming back to the fact that the countries that are hosting the largest number of refugees, whether we call them economic refugees or particularly political refugees, are not the countries that are doing, if I may speak frankly, the most complaining, right? So, you know, that kind of disjunct in who's talking about it and who's actually doing the work is something that I, that I really wanted to probe further. And I think the Rohingya case is, is a really good example of that because it really seems to me that other countries are very happy to let Bangladesh deal with this issue and not really offer a long-term solution.
1: Fascinating. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this once your project has progressed a bit further, and I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to you in a couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> how, how are you actually conducting your research? What kind of method are you
2: using to find out more? Right. So my plan before COVID was to spend some time in Eastern India, in Calcutta, where my family's based and kind of probe a little bit on the ground what the thoughts about this good good refugee, bad refugee is. And I think the circumstances related to COVID, but also in the political circumstances in India, don't really permit that kind of research anymore. So what I'm really going to do now is to look at discourse and narrative. So I'm going to be looking at media reports, public statements by officials, UN documents to see how how these particular bodies of refugees are being discussed nationally, regionally, as well as globally, and sort of tying that to my overall interest in framings of refugee and how those framings pertain to policy. So the fieldwork element of it has has had to be taken out, unfortunately, but I think that there is enough of a documented public debate about this over the decades that I would have enough information to draw the links that I'm particularly interested in. And I should say with the Rohingya part of this refugee, I do have co-author based in the United States as well. And she has done some Field work with the Rohingya in Bangladesh prior to COVID, of course. And she also made a short, very interesting documentary film, which I'm trying to persuade her to have more people see. And so that part of the work was facilitated very much by the on-the-ground work that she was able to do in Bangladesh and speaking both to the refugee populations and to the Bangladesh government. And, you know, just as, as a sidetrack, one of the things that that she told me is that when she was speaking to the Bangladesh government officials, they were, you know, repeating, you know, we really want the international community to pressure Myanmar to take the Rohingya back. It's very important to us that that is the solution that happens and it's the right solution. But when she spoke to the refugee population, they were like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going back. Everything that happened to us, everything that we fled and really horrific, horrific cases of military abuses, they just said, there's just no way. So, Assuming that repatriation is, is always voluntary and it should be and it is legally, there's a very wide gap between what the Bangladesh government wants and what the refugee population there is looking to. And and that's not unique to the range, of course.
1: No, I, th- I think it's, it's a problem in, in all these cases across the world, actually. There were news in Germany about families getting deported after eight years, 10 years, 15 years back to one of the former Yugoslav states with children that had absolutely no ties to these countries. They didn't speak the language
2: and nothing. And they were put on a plane and sent back. Yeah. And, you know, that, that is the sad reality that confronts refugees everywhere. I mean, by definition, you're a refugee because you're unwanted, right? And so that's the ultimate tragedy is that just Nobody wants the refugee, not the country that expelled them, not the intermediary country, not the host country. That's the grim reality that I think we have not found a sustainable way to address, to, to just change the way that we look at a person who is a refugee and kind of see that here's a human being. Mm-hmm who's not wanted, who just doesn't have a home because nobody wants to give them a home.
0: Unless maybe when it seems opportune to include some of the better educated ones that can even fill gaps in Western countries.
2: And that's the other thing I want to say is that, you know, in the US, I think this happens in Europe too, sometimes you know, there's a showcase of successful refugees, like, oh, this person's a refugee from Afghanistan. And look, now they're a big surgeon. And this person's a refugee from Libya. And now they're this fantastic athlete. And that's great. Um And it's, it's always good to showcase success, professional success in in the face of adversity. But most refugees are not going to become famous surgeons or great Olympic athletes. Most refugees are just ordinary people, like like I am, you know, who get jobs, do their work, but, but are just not destined to be famous, right? And so what do we do with them? And how do we view the ordinary person who has lost their home? I think that is a question that, again, we don't have a clear answer to. And I think sometimes the discourses about the economic value that refugees bring, while it is valuable, sidesteps the question maybe that, for the most part, in their initial years, refugee populations are a cost to the host society, and that has to be accepted and considered legitimate and valuable for entirely moral reasons and not for instrumental reasons.
1: Do we have a problem about talking moral reasons these days? Like we have a securitization of certain issues? We have. Do we have an economicalization of issues that prevents us from talking about what's good and right and what's wrong?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, the the origins that the moral origins of the Refugee Convention was that all persons are deserving of a basic dignity, which includes a place to live, but also a nationality, because that is the international system. If you don't have a state that you belong to, as the Rohingya don't, then you're, you're less than a person. Right. And, you know, we can have kind of abstract discussions about why that whole normative framework should be changed, but I'm less interested in that because that's the practical reality. If you don't have a country, you don't have a passport, you're not really a person in our international system. But what I think has happened over time is countries see refugees as a security risk and societies and countries see refugees as a cost. And they are a cost. They are a physical cost. So in order to recognize that that cost is worth it, I think we have to go back to that initial normative idea that says people are worthy of dignity because they're people and all people deserve to be part of a nation state because belonging to a nation state underlines dignity in our international system. That's the, the the reality that we all have to kind of grasp. And I think, you know, we see the same kind of issues in the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So normatively agree that everybody deserves the vaccine, everybody deserves to be protected from this virus, particularly because we have the science and the ability to protect people from the virus, right? But while we agree theoretically that's the case, in practice, we don't really have mechanisms in place to make that make that idea available to all. And so the the tiers by which we just define human dignity becomes economized because now it's like, well, who's gonna pay for the vaccine that goes to Burkina Faso? And who's gonna pay for the vaccine that for the vaccines that China is sending? So it all becomes very material when the fundamental issue is that do we think people have the fundamental right, just by virtue of being people, to have access to a health product that is there, right? It's available. It's not something that's that's being developed. It's actually present already in our international system.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Would you say the whole well let's call it
1: refugee
2: issue as shorthand, has it been sidelined by COVID? Absolutely. 100%. And I think the question also of how do we get vaccines into refugee camps is is a question that no one's really dealing with. And in fact, early on in the refugee crisis, my co-author told me this is that you know, there's been renewed unrest in Myanmar. And so the Rohingya were fleeing and they were trying to make their way towards Thailand and Malaysia. And I think she said it was a ship of about 700 refugees that were stuck because Thailand and Malaysia said, well, we're in lockdown. We're not letting anybody in. And so ultimately, after some weeks of negotiation, the Bangladesh government ultimately ended picking them. Maybe not because they wanted to, but because nobody else was doing it. So these kinds of stories... Are stories that you would only know if you were diligently following a particular topic. And I think today countries just don't have the bandwidth to deal with refugees and the pandemic at the same time. Because in addition to the security risk and the economic cost, now we can say refugees are a huge health cost as well, right? And the, the US government under the Trump administration did say that. I mean, that's something that the Biden administration hasn't entirely undone. So the issue has become sidelined, but also I think the issue has become even more problematized because countries are not even taking tourists, leave alone refugees. Yeah, true. But the the problem is going to come back in a bigger scale than we've seen before because you cannot stop, you can stop tourists from traveling, but you cannot stop the forces that are driving people out of their homes. Wow, that's
0: depressing. (laughs) This is not in any way meant to sugarcoat something that is just horrible. But I think in your research, there is also an element of looking at the cooperation aspects of the countries in South Asia. So are we at least there seeing some glimpses of hope or is it all defined by a cooperation, non-cooperation sort of binary?
2: So I I think in South Asia... You know, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, they all actually have a long history of hosting refugees and um, uh, not taking them out. And in many of those cases, particularly in Pakistan and Bangladesh, I would say there is a track record of cooperation with international agencies. So, you know, Bangladesh's hosting of Rohingya is done in very close cooperation with the UN and with a slew of NGOs. And Bangladesh is well poised to do that because the country has a long history of NGO presence, both domestic NGOs as well as international NGOs. So the cooperation is there. In the case of Pakistan, it's a little bit more rocky, but Pakistan has hosted large numbers of Afghan refugees from the time of the Afghan-Soviet war, and they have worked with, with the United Nations as well on that. So, and India, you know, is a little bit more independent minded, has greater capacity, so it has tended to sort of deal with the with the different refugee populations on its own but particularly with the tibetan refugees there has been some limited involvement of the un but the cooperation that exists exists between specific countries of south asia and international agencies it's not really cooperation between the countries and given that the refugees that these countries are hosting are all from the neighborhood I think there is much more of a desirability, I think, of work between the countries. The big roadblock to that, I think, is the India-Pakistan issue, which is a massive roadblock, I think, to even the other smaller countries in the region to working within themselves because everything is dominated by that particular conflict. If and when that conflict becomes... Less tense, I think, then you would have a very fertile ground for work within the region. Because, as has been evident in statements from the African Union, for example, the refugee problem is predominantly a regional problem. Most refugees go to their neighboring countries. So, while the international and global framework provides a way for that to be crystallized, the on the ground work really comes from regional cooperation. I think that's a very important thing to know.
1: Also, well, some small ray of hope at least.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know that if it's small. I mean, I, I painted a very grim picture, but I think if you think about it, for all of the problems in South Asia, as I said, that the fact that these countries have hosted large numbers of refugees for a long period of time and many of the refugees have built new lives, like a lot of Tibetan refugees in India have built decent lives, that I think is noteworthy. And it's, you know, noteworthy particularly because this is a region without a lot of resources. And that's something that I think the the countries of South Asia get a little prickly about when they're criticized internationally, because they're saying, well, you know, you all are lecturing us in Geneva, but we actually have large numbers of refugees that have built a life. And my own family is is a testament to that, I would say. Indeed. So thank you so much. That was really interesting. So we didn't want to stop too soon. (laughs) Thank you. And I think in the course of this conversation, I've got some new ideas of how to develop my research. So thank you. Fantastic. So thank you so much again.
0: Yes. And also from my side, thank you very much, Bidita, for this super interesting conversation and all the new insights into migration policy in South Asia. To find out more about the fellowship program and our application process or about the research done at the center, visit our website, gcr21.org, and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And all of the references and publications mentioned here today can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to Copa Radio on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. Cooper Radio is a production of the Keter Hamburger Colleges Center for Global Cooperation Research at the University of Duisburg Essen. Additional voiceover Janine Herbert and Julia Fleck. Ideas, script and editing Julia Fleck, Marike Gertzen, Janine Herbert and Ida Schwinges. Cover design and social media Milena Gehle. Thank you for listening. If you don't want to miss our next episode, remember
2: to follow and subscribe to Cooper Radio on your favorite podcatcher.